0: start our time tonight by reading again from these verses that I've spoken on a couple of times this year regarding unity. Let's start in Ephesians chapter 4 and we will start reading in verse 1. Ephesians 4, starting in 1. Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as also you were called in one hope of your calling one lord one faith one baptism one god and father of all who is over all and through all and in all tonight i want us to briefly visit revisit some of the major themes That I've spoken on kind of in this series regarding unity, and then we'll do something a little bit different. We've been talking about the subject of unity, and you may or you may not, you will be forgiven because it was many months ago when this started. Remember where we've come from, especially in these verses here in Ephesians. We started our time especially focusing on Ephesians 4, 1 and then 3 about what it means to walk worthy of the calling. What is the calling that Paul is talking about walking worthily of? And if you look in the context of Ephesians, especially chapters 2 and 3, you see that the calling that he's talking about primarily relates to the work of Christ in breaking down every barrier between Christians. And so he implores us to walk worthy of the calling with which we've been called and to be diligent to preserve the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. And when Paul talks about peace here, he's not primarily talking about a subjective feeling. I feel peace towards this person. He's talking about something deeper, something more concrete, something that can help us when we feel that we're being torn apart and our unity being threatened. A firmer foundation than just something we feel. The peace that he's talking about here is called the gospel of peace. And it's the work of Jesus. And you will remember the phrase that I'm starting to wear out just a little bit. When you became one with Christ, you became one with each other. And I'll never tire of saying that for the simple reason of this. It is so foundational to all that is Christianity When you became a Christian, God didn't just give you salvation, kind of like you would receive a package from Amazon. What happened is, you were brought into Christ. And when you're brought into Christ, you get all of His benefits. That's why He became unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification. He became unto us redemption. When we were brought into Christ, we received salvation. But guess what? When you were brought into Christ, so was I, and so were others along the way. So that when you become one with Christ, you become one with each other. So that unity is not just this side thing that we talk about in Christianity and then move on to important things. It's the heart of what it means to be a Christian. So that when you see disunity in a church, or you see disunity among professing believers, it's not like, wow, there's this relationship problem, and this may or may not be something that's important. It actually calls into question whether one or the other, or both parties are actually in Christ. It's a serious thing. When you become one with Christ, you become one with each other. And we moved on in the second message. And looked at Ephesians chapter uh, 4, verse 2, where Paul says, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance, or like the ESV, bearing with one another and love. And you see Paul work from theology into practice. What does it look like to be diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace? What is going to be required of a person? What are the characteristics of the man, of the woman? That are doing this. And he makes it clear. There's humility and gentleness. There is deliverance from the self-life. That keeps you from being pushy. And abrasive. Humility. Gentleness. Then there's this with patience. Bearing with one another in love. And I love this, this word. Bearing with one another. It literally means. To brace yourself against. You're bracing yourself. I am going to brace myself for unity because I know that in relationships, I am going to encounter things that are going to try and move me away from this position. They're going to try and shake my unity. Oh, how the devil wants to tear apart the saints. And we have to be ready to brace ourselves. Brace ourselves and overlook a multitude of offenses For the sake of unity. Because not only are we having to overlook those offenses. Others are having to overlook it in us too. And that's a very good thing to remember. It's a very good thing to remember. So what is the principle here? If the principle in the first message is. When you became one with Christ. You became one with each other. The principle in this message is. Be easy to get along with. And hard to offend. Be easy to get along with. With all humility and gentleness. Be hard to offend, bracing yourselves for unity. That's the principle. We went on in that message and looked at 4, 4 through 6, where he talks about there's one body, one spirit. You're called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. He's getting a little repetitive. One God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. And what is so striking about this section, when Paul moves into talking about our unity, talking about our common unity, it is this. Here's one principle from this message, is that when you think about unity, think about God. That's what Paul does. He walks through the all of the members of the Trinity here. There's one Spirit, there's one Lord, and there's one God. So often we err when we talk about unity or we talk about relationships don 't start with man don 't start with man and let 's see let 's start with man and work it out from here let 's start with God because that brings us to the second uh, to a principle that 's kind of related to that that high thoughts of God leave very little room for low thoughts of people. What tends to happen over the years in a church and in relationships and i 've seen it happen in my life when you live day in and day out with people, and you're bumping up against people, and we still live in a fallen world, what tends to happen is these offenses start to accumulate. And pretty soon, those are what defines the relationship. And so everything starts to offend us. You get offended over the littlest things. But I know in my own life, when I have my mind renewed in the Lord, and I have great thoughts of God in my mind, the little things that bothered me so much in my relationships with others, tend to fall off. And so when Paul thinks about unity, his mind immediately is taken up with great thoughts of God. And here's the second principle. When you think of believers, think of your oneness. And again, this goes back to accumulated offenses over the years. What tends to happen is the relationships get defined by that. When you see this brother or you see this sister, the first thing that pops into your mind is an offense that happened yesterday last week last month last year it doesn't matter but it's easy for those types of offenses and for things that happened in the relationship to become what defines the relationship but Paul says no don't do that when you think of another believer let your knee jerk reaction let your let your default be your oneness that brother was baptized and so was I he has one lord I have the same Lord. There's one God and Father over Him. There's one God and Father over me. We share a common faith. And when you start working through those things, and that's your focus, is your oneness, a lot of these other things tend to fall off. So those were the principles in the first two messages. When you became one with Christ, you became one with each other. Be easy to get along with and hard to offend. When you think about unity, think about God. When you think of believers, think of your oneness. And then in the last message, we briefly looked at John 13. And it's pretty incredible. In the entire upper room discourse, Christ gave us many teachings but one example. And that is significant. And you know what the example is. Christ laying down his life "...for the believers washing their feet." And when he gets done, he says, "...I have given you an example that you should follow." And that gives us... That sets the stage. It wraps up exactly what Paul is saying in Ephesians chapter 4, and really what he's saying in almost Ephesians as a whole, that the posture of the Christian life, the default of the Christian, is serving others. A life poured out on behalf of the saints." That's the posture of the Christian life, is Jesus in John chapter 13. Being like Jesus means that you empty yourself and become a servant, just like it says in Philippians chapter 2. So what I want to do tonight, tonight I just want to stir these truths up. Remind us and kind of stir us up to love and good deeds by looking very, very briefly at the life of a man named Robert Chapman. Uh, At one point in my preparation, I had grandiose ideas that I was going to give a biography. After almost eight page of eight point font, single space type notes, and realizing the span of time that I have, I just realized I'm not going to be able to do a biography. And so the only thing that I can do tonight is hopefully stir you up by telling a few stories from his life, I'll give a brief outline and then tell a few stories of how this man was used by God and the grace that he saw in his life to live this, these principles that I've been talking about of that the posture of the Christian life is that you have died to self and you pour your life out for others. And um, I would encourage you to read, I would encourage you to read the whole life of Robert Chapman. Um, I can honestly say I've thought about this. Um, I can honestly say that in the past several years, this is the most encouraging book that I've read. And there's a couple of biographies. There's a really old one, but the one that you want to read is called Robert Chapman, Apostle of Love, by a man named Robert Peterson. I don't know, some of you may have read that. Um, It's available on Amazon. You can also get it. I I came upon this biography, and Jim, maybe you did too, through the Love or Die series. Alexander Strach, some of you may know, most of us went through that book. Um, He pushes this book hard, and I love it, because denominationally, he's so different, because Robert Chapman's brethren, so it's very different. But what is so attractive about his life is the love of Christ. So I'm hoping I can read a few stories, stir you up, and you'll go read the biography. There's also a few other things. Um, There's a collection of his quotes called Choice Sayings that I think you can find on Google Books. If not, it's on Kindle for two ninety nine. Then there's also this little book, Agape Leadership, Agape, Agape being the Greek word for love, so loving leadership. And it just kind of categorizes characteristics of his life and tells stories about it. So there's one in here on unity, and it just talks about Robert Chapman in the context of fighting for unity. There's one on um, character, and it talks a little bit about his character. So it's kind of ordered more along the line of characteristics, whereas the biography reads more like a story, like a novel of his life. And it's very, very encouraging. As a side note, let me say something briefly about how to read biographies. Because it's very easy to read biographies and get all bound up by them. You read, about, you read, about, you read the biography of Charles Spurgeon? Well, go and do what he did. See how long that lasts. It won't last very long. He's exhausting. He required very little sleep, although he died very young. That probably is a correlation there. And he accomplished so much. Or you read Hudson Taylor, and he evangelizes China. Or you read about Mueller, and he opens this orphanage, and what tends to happen is, is you fall under condemnation. Let me make a distinction here. Conviction is good. Biographies should convict us. When you read The Life of Robert Chapman... I hope you'll be convicted. I was very convicted. When I read about Spurgeon, I'm convicted in the sense that it makes me want to go on more with the Lord. Condemnation is an entirely different thing altogether. So how do you read a biography? The best way to read a biography is following the commandment in Hebrews 13.7. And let me just read this to you. It says, Remember those who led you, who spoke the word of God to you, and consider the result of their conduct... Considering the result of their conduct, imitate their faith. There's the important part. George Mueller believed God to open up orphanages and to feed thousands of orphans. What is God leading you to believe him in? In what area of God has God been leading you? Or you've, you've, man, maybe it's the area of giving. You need to be giving more. Maybe it's the area of hospitality. Maybe it's the area of um, witnessing to the people at gas stations. It could be a myriad of things. What is the next step in your life in following Jesus? George Mueller believed God. Robert Chapman believed God. Charles Spurgeon, Amy Carmichael. What these things should do is not to make us think that, okay, now if I really want to live for God, I need to go open an orphanage. That is not what it means. It may mean that. But it does not principally mean that. It means you need to believe God in whatever the next thing that He's leading you to. Believe God. Whether it's an orphanage or whether it's once a week after the kids go down, I want to start trying to maybe once every couple of weeks, we'll start it every couple weeks, inviting people over, somebody, a saint over, and pop popcorn so that we can start having more hospitality. We'll start there. What is God leading you to believe Him in? That's the way to read biographies, and that's the way to get encouragement from them. So now that we're almost out of time, I'll start on the biography. I'm not going to be giving any new principles tonight. Again, as I said, I simply want to stir us up to enter into being a people who prioritize relationships and unity. People who, like Paul says in Second Corinthians, towards the end... He says, basically, I'm not trying to win an argument. I'm trying to win you. There's a very big difference in the Christian life. It is one thing to stand up for doctrinal truth. Oh, we have to defend doctrine. Like, I hope you know, after being here long enough, we believe in defending doctrine. But it doesn't end there. You win people. Win people. Let that be our aim. Let that be our goal. We want to lay down our lives for others so that they're drawn closer to Christ. And as I've said, Robert Chapman excelled in this. He excelled in this. God gave him great grace in this area that he laid down his life for others. And he had so much of a sense of God about him, just a sense of God. There's actually a story told of him sitting on a train, uh, on a train with a couple and it says this, it says, Though Chapman had not opened his lips, a man and a woman began to quarrel furiously in French. And at last the woman said, I affirm that I am as innocent of that which you accuse me as that holy man of God sitting over there in the corner who anyone can see is going straight to heaven. <laughs> Robert Chapman. He had a sense of God about him. So let me give you a very, very brief bullet points of his life. He was born in 1803 in Denmark to a very highly cultured family, Um, but not too terribly long after he was born, his father's business failed, so they moved back to England. When he was around 15, he moved to London to do a five-year apprenticeship to be an attorney, attorney. And during this time, he was unconverted. A lot of people thought that he was converted, but he didn't think he was converted. And he was still very, very much in his sin, and he was very miserable from it, even though he was doing things like diligently um, reading the Bible and things like that at the time. However, in London, he came under the... Um, the ministry of a man named James Evans who was an ex-Anglican. He left Anglicanism, set up a church that emphasized um, justification by faith alone and they had open type meetings where everyone would share and it sounds like there was a real vibrant body life there and a healthy um, emphasis on the gospel. And so during that time... Robert Chapman comes under that influence of James Evans. He's never heard justification by faith alone preached so clearly, and he's converted around 1823, so he's 20 years old. Two years later, in 1825, he inherits a fortune, And sets up a practice as an attorney, and the practice thrives. And there were a lot of attorneys in the area, especially the older attorneys, that saw great potential in Chapman's life and thought this guy is going to be a great attorney one day. And really, um, Robert Peterson notes that a lot of his success seems to be from the way that he handled people. He was gracious with them, and the Lord really, um, the Lord really blessed. But God had different plans for him. In 1831, a very troubled church, he, under James Evans' ministry, James Evans kind of nurtures him along, and he, he starts preaching and doing things like that in the meeting. In 1831, he was called to a very troubled church in Barnstaple. i me going to stop right here, because for the last several years, I have known this as Barnstaple. So tonight, I'm probably going to mispronounce that, and I say that in one reason, because Kira is with us, and I'm very sorry for mispronouncing your name on Sunday. Those who know me know that I two things about me, I care deeply, and I mispronounce just about everything. So I'm going to try my best to say Barnstable tonight, but you may hear Barnstaple. and in my defense, phonetically, that's what it looks like. He was called to a troubled church in Barnstable, and there was a big split here, and it related to um, minor secondary issues, but he told them, if you will agree to let me teach whatever I find in the Word of God, I will come. And most of the people said, yes, we'll we'll agree, we need you here. And to give you a little sense for the trouble that this church was in, in the prior 18 months, they had gone through three different pastors. This is not your ideal first church. But Chapman took it. Thus began 70 years of pastoring in Barnstable. 70 years. That is incredible. That is absolutely incredible and a testimony to the grace of God. During his life, he made a few visits overseas. He had a tremendous burden for missions. And, and it's very encouraging to read because you can. his life illustrates the fact you can be very much involved in foreign missions right where you're at. Even though he took a couple of trips to Spain, we could spend our whole time talking about that, and a trip to Ireland um, where amazing things happened. His, his, his incessant labors and in intercession on behalf of missions and writing them to encourage them was a major burden of his. He wanted to encourage missionaries. And so he was very much involved in foreign missions. He went to Spain, he went to Ireland, and he knew missionaries all over the place and they, they loved him as a father. <laughs> he was very close friends with ones like Hudson Taylor, George Mueller, and Charles Spurgeon. If you need more Help to read his biography. You probably haven't heard some of you about Robert Chapman before tonight, but you have heard of Charles Spurgeon, and Spurgeon said that Robert Chapman is the holiest man I've ever met. That's a big deal. Spurgeon (laughs) met a lot of people. That's that's it's a pretty incredible statement. He knew Spurgeon. He knew Hudson Taylor. He corresponded um, tirelessly with Taylor and George Mueller, along with some of the other early brethren. And many others. And when he died at 99 years of age, he had so captured the heart of the people that 2,000 people came to his funeral. And what's even more significant to me, there were 80 people who wanted to take turns carrying his coffin because they so adored this man of God. 80 people took turns carrying his coffins because they just wanted to be a part of this funeral and the final days of his life. He had won the hearts of the people around him, and as far as I can tell, without compromising truth whatsoever. That is significant. That is incredible. He cared very deeply about others. I think these things right here, these couple of sayings kind of summarize his life. After he preached his first message, his friends pulled him aside and said, Brother, you're not going to be a good preacher. Like, You've missed it completely. There's no way. You're never going to be a good preacher. As the Lord would have it, he actually did become a good preacher. But this saying, these couple of quotes capture his life. He said this in response to them saying that, He said, there are many who preach Christ, but not many who live Christ. My great aim will be to live Christ. And then he said this, and I think this so defines his appeal. This helps explain how 2,000 people show up to his his, uh, funeral. 80 people want to carry the coffin that he's just adored throughout the land without it compromising truth. And I think this quote gives an insight into the man. He says, My business is to love others and not to seek that others shall love me. My business is to love others and not to seek that others will love me. It is a blessed thing to come to a place where you don't need to get something from people in order to serve them where you've gotten a hold of the truth that John sets forth, we love because he first loved us. The driving motivation in my life, the driving thing behind me, the reason, the great secret of perseverance in this man's life was that he was captured by the fact that while he was an enemy, Christ died for him. God loved him, and he didn't, in a large measure, need anything from other people in order to continue laying down his life for people. And I don't want to give the impression that the reason why that this was is because he lived such an easy life and he was around easy to get along with people. That is not the case There are several stories that kind of illustrate this. As I mentioned, he was born into a wealthy, very high-class family. When he was converted, most of them ostracized him. And in a large fact, it probably had to do with the fact that he was baptized as an infant. And when he became a a Christian, actually was converted, he had a very, very deep conviction from the Scriptures that he had never been truly scripturally baptized. And he was now a Christian, and he needed to be baptized again. And it was scandalous, because it put a very big dark cloud over all of their professions. So most of his family ostracized him. He met opposition in preaching. Like I said, I don't see that this man compromised truth. I was looking for it, because like, how, many, how can so many people be so affectionate towards this man? But when you read his messages, you don't find compromise at all. He often preached in the open air, and he preached fiercely against sin. And he preached fiercely justification by faith alone. And during these times, he was often verbally abused, and sometimes it even got physical. What can be even more difficult, and what he met, was opposition from other professing Christians. There are stories of other churches and professing Christian groups there in Barnstaple where Chapman's church would try and get a piece of land and they would come in behind them and get the land. Or Chapman's church would try and get a building and they would lay claim to the building. And so there was there was several things like that. And then probably the thing that hurt him the most in his life is the split that happened in the Brethren at the time. And I don't know if you know much of their history and the difference between the Open Brethren and the Closed Brethren, but the movement was about 15 years old around this time. And you may know names like J.N. Darby and some of those guys. And there was a split in the dev- Brethren. It was a deep rift that had to do a lot with church government, how church governments run, views on prophecy, the end times, and especially who we are willing to fellowship with and who we're not willing to fellowship with. And that really didn't relate to doctrine. It related to denominations. So again, I want to stress that these were secondary issues, as far as I could tell, and the movement split, and it broke Chapman's heart. It absolutely broke his heart. And so he labored tirelessly. He called um, for... He was actually in Spain on I think one of his trips when he got word that the rift was deepening and he called for a day of fasting and prayer and repentance and he wrote a circular letter to all of the brethren assemblies trying to heal this rift and he even traveled around meeting with the main leaders pleading with them. but the whole thing failed and they split and there was a lot of pain and it was it was a very very trying and dark time and he went through a lot during that time he went through a lot so When we read about help that he had in his life, he's not dealing with exceptionally nice people. He's in very difficult situations. But his selfless love and his tireless efforts to pour his life out for others was greatly rewarded. And God helped him in being delivered from self often to win back those who were in opposition to him. Let me just read you a few stories here. I mentioned one time abuse from... I mentioned about he suffered abuse from preaching. It says this, A grocer in Barnstable became so upset when Chapman was preaching in the open air that he rode up to where Chapman was standing and spit on him. Later, one of Chapman's relatives came to Barnstable to visit him to try and understand his activities. Arriving by horse-drawn cab at the address given him, the relative at first would not believed that Chapman lived in such a simple abode in such a poor neighborhood. Chapman ushered him into a clean but simple interior and explained what living dependence upon the Lord meant and how the Lord had provided for all of his needs. The relative asked if he could purchase groceries for him. Chapman gladly assented, and when you read his biography, you know something's weird here. Because Chapman, he wouldn't accept gifts from people a lot of times. I mean, he would, he didn't. Sometimes I think he took it to an extreme, and his biographer notes that. But you can tell something's up here. Chapman gladly assents to letting this man buy groceries for him. And keep in mind, there's a grocer that just spit on him. You can probably see where this is going. But stipulated that he must buy the food from a certain grocer. The relative went there, made a large purchase, and paid the bill. When the grocer learned that the food was to be delivered to R.C. Chapman, he said that the visitor must have come to the wrong shop. Chapman's relative, however, replied that Chapman himself had specifically directed him to that shop. The grocer, who had viciously attacked Chapman for years, broke down in tears. Soon he came to Chapman's home asked for forgiveness, and yielded his life to Christ. Oh, to be delivered from self and to have to always have everything made right. One through selfless love Another story is told about when Chapman had to discipline a man out of a church. And here, again, is his stance for truth. He actually disciplined people out, not only for lifestyle things, but for doctrinal things. It says, On one occasion, an excluded man became bitter and vowed never to speak a word to Chapman again. Sometimes later, they found themselves approaching each other on the street. Knowing all that the man had been saying about him, Chapman embraced him and said, Dear brother, God loves you. Christ love you, and I love you. This action broke the man's animosity. He repented and was soon restored to fellowship back at the chapel. It's incredible. I mentioned earlier that Chapman had a few times in their life where this is a growing assembly, as they call them, this growing assembly, there's people um, starting to come to their little group, and they needed desperately a building. And there was a couple of times when they tried to pursue a building and somebody else would step in and get it. And to understand a little of the context here, what happened when Chapman came is there was still that little group that disagreed with his coming, and they didn't like him, and they didn't like him until the day that they split off and made a separate group. Well, what happens is this. Says about that time Chapman came to Barnstable, a general Baptist, distinct from the particular Baptist church, was constituted there. A new building was erected for them by the owner of a lace factory and was completed by February of 1833, ten months after Chapman arrived. But the General Baptist work did not thrive and collapse in about three years. So here's what happens this group moves into town, they erect a building. The work collapses, so now there's a building available, and Chapman and his group really need a building. The property was put up for sale, but the sale never materialized. The seceders from the um, Chapman, chapel when um, Chapman had originally come asked to rent and build, asked to rent the building, and were per- permitted to do so, although meeting as particular Baptist. After another year or so, the general Baptist regrouped and asked the particular Baptist to vacate the building. So there's a lot of Baptist stuff going on here. But here's what's happening. There's a building that's been erected. A group is meeting there. They falter, fall away. Another group comes in. But then the group that failed is like, hey, we're doing better now. We would like our building back. And the people that were in the building were actually, I think I said it wrong, they were actually, Chapman's group was in the building at the time. And so what ends up happening is this, is the people that had broken off for them, they want that building. The people that, when Chapman had originally come, they want the building, and they say that our claim is on that building, not yours. After it was very carefully, after inspecting legal documents and things like that, it was very clear that it was Chapman and his group's building. So what does Chapman do? He takes the whole thing to the Lord in prayer, and they eventually give the building to this disgruntled group. Now, we may question the wisdom of God in it, and who knows? Um... You know, the Lord would do various things in those situations, and I could see it going both ways. But Chapman took the humble position, and God honored it. A a generation later, that group had completely turned over, and there was a very vibrant gospel in that church. And for years to come, they looked to Chapman as one of their pioneers. So the man that had been ostracized a generation before and had laid his life down and surrendered his rights, a generation later had won that entire group to the Lord, basically. And now they're going on with the Lord and view him as almost a father figure in their part. Same thing happens with another Anglican group. Not too long later, they finally find some more grant. Land, an Anglican group says, hey, we were actually going to get that. They do exactly the same thing and give that parcel of land to the Anglican group, and the same thing happens. Another generation is raised up of evangelical witness there, and a large part they look to Robert Chapman. Again, just laying down your life. One final thing here is related to this split with Darby, and you'll just have to read about it. It was a deep, deep split, and Chapman labored night and day for months on end and could not heal it. And Darby, he actually took the position against Darby. Darby and kind of his group took the closed brethren, and they started a a group of assemblies that would only associate with other brethren that completely agreed right down the line with all of their doctrinal beliefs. And because of that, it brought Chapman into – Chapman received a lot of um, disgruntledness from those brethren who supported Darby. And here's here's what he says. He says, he was even reviled by some of the brothers who were sympathetic to Darby. Assemblies where Chapman had once been welcomed now refused his fellowship. Darby, however, defended Chapman. When some of Darby's followers tried to argue that Chapman was deficient in some doctrinal basics, Darby reproved them saying, you leave that man alone, he lives what I teach. On another occasion, Darby said, we talk of the heavenlies, but Robert Chapman lives there. And it's pretty incredible, because when you read what what Chapman actually said to Darby. He actually rebukes him. But Chapman has so much of a sense of love and so much of a sense of God. And there's such a sense of that this man is not fighting a personal battle. And isn't that what gets us in trouble? We fight personal battles. It gets personal. This is about me and about my reputation. And what seems to have happened in Robert Chapman's life is that he was largely delivered from that to the extent that even guys that he opposed... When their group stands up to oppose Chapman, the leader of the group, Darby, says, you leave that man alone. He lives what I teach. What a testimony. What a testimony. He didn't take things personally. He sought to win people, not arguments. And it may seem like the secret to Chapman's life is that he prioritized people above all things. Right? Right? You may could draw that conclusion that the secret of this man's great strength was that he was a great humanitarian. Like some of these people who don't believe in God, they're against religion and they go off to Africa and live serving their life. You may think that that's kind of like his main thing in life was that he had reversed the order of the greatest and second greatest commandment. And he put love your neighbor as yourself above all things. But that's actually not the case. Listen to this quote from him. My chief, and, and, and put this in the context of all you've just heard, which is a smattering of stories from eight-point font, eight-page of type notes. I took, like, just a couple of stories out of those. So we could do this all night long of stories about how he laid down his life for people and acted very selflessly in situations where it would be very easy to search your rights. Listen to this. My chief desire is to please God. If I please my brethren, I am glad. If I fail, I am not disappointed. The secret of his strength is not that he put people first. The secret of his strength is that he put God first. He was so taken up with God. And when you read the biography and you read his writings and read his quotes, you get a sense of this. This man lived with God. And remember what we said one of the principles is high thoughts of God leaves very little room for low thoughts of people. It is very hard to get annoyed with personality quirks when you are saturated with the wonder of the Godhead. And that's what happened in his life. He made his chief end to have his mind renewed with great thoughts of God and what Jesus Christ had done in the gospel. And the result of that is a man who laid down his life for others and often God helped so that those who were in opposition to him were one back and one to Jesus. Problems in relationships and problems in unity, therefore, are fundamentally a problem with God. Something is wrong on a vertical level. And that's why John can make, in 1 John, loving your brother, a test for all of Christianity. And that's why sometimes Paul and even James can quote the second greatest commandment without quoting the first. That's why he can say that the law is summed up in this saying, "...you shall love your neighbor as yourself." I wouldn't have done that. I would say the law is summed up in saying, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. We want to be clear here. We don't want anybody to get the wrong impression. But laying down your life for other people, John 13, having your posture be of the Lord Jesus with a towel in his hand, washing the feet of the saints, is so tied into what it means to be a Christian that he can, quote, just the second commandment. Because if you don't have that, you certainly don't have the first. So what do we want to do? We want to cultivate great thoughts of God. We want to give ourselves to God to renewing our mind, having great thoughts of God, be saturated with the sense of God, to live with God, to commune with God, to believe God. And we want to be people who lay our lives down for other people just like Robert Chapman did. Let's pray. God, we thank you for stories like Robert Chapman. And Lord, we know that the best of men are men at best, Lord. Here's a man that was a wicked sinner, as selfish as any man ever was born, and yet you saved him. And through your grace, you did marvelous things in his life, Lord, and you made him selfless, and you made him love you, and you made him love others. And, oh, God, would you help us? Would you stir that up in us tonight? (coughs) Again, Lord, we want to pray the same thing we prayed when we started. Lord, may your mercy be over all of your works. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.